This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Malden, your host, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Roy Lennox, who I'll introduce in a moment. Before we begin, Roy, I wanted to point out that we're in our new recording studio here for the first recording in the new Loose Hall at the Center of Theological Inquiry, uh, where the podcast is recorded. And uh, thanks for being on this podcast, Roy, for this uh, this big occasion of using this studio. And, and it's real. I just wanted to jump in and say it's really exciting being here. This studio is fantastic. We've been talking about it for the last couple of years, and it's great to see it actually, you know, being used. It's amazing. And thanks to you for your leadership. As I'm going to say, you're the chair of the board of the Center of Theological Inquiry, so you're very much behind uh, all this activity that's been going on in setting up our, our new our new facility. You're also a historian, a financial entrepreneur, and an author of the recent book, In the Footsteps of Jesus, which is what we're going to be talking about today. You're also a founding member of the Caxton Corporation, one of the first macro hedge funds, and an active member and elder of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. You hold a PhD in history and an MBA in finance from Columbia University. One of the questions I had for you was going to be how your background in finance influenced the way you wrote this book of history, but it might be better to flip it around since your history came first and how your work in history, as you've often said, influenced your work in finance, but maybe come at it from either way. Sure. Well, I remember um, when I was working at Caxton, this was a while back, I had to give a talk to a... Um, a bunch of people from Goldman Sachs. And I would say 90% of them were probably MBAs. And um, one of the things I said, and I was trying to be a little bit provocative, I said, you know, I could tell you every all the important things I learned in my MBA in about five minutes. And then I went off and said a couple different things, uh, you know, trying to get to laugh. And mm-hmm. then I said, but what I'd really like to say is, but really taught me how to be a successful trader and investor in financial markets is history. And what I added was it's not the the old adage that we learn from the past. That's ridiculous. You know, you know, almost all the times we think we're something learning from the past, we're learning the the wrong lesson at the wrong time. What I was talking about in history, you have to make judgments based on, on incomplete information. You also have to keep your emotions out of it. You can't, you know, so you could have certain political beliefs or social beliefs, but when you're analyzing history, you can't let them come, you know, uh, sort of uh, force you to think in a certain way. So it's the same thing with the markets. If you have all the information, the investment is gone. And if, so you have to look at the incomplete information you have to keep your emotions out of it. And this might sound a little bit strange, but you also have to use your sort of gut feelings, your intuition when it's appropriate. Yeah. One of the great speculators, George Zoros, once said, uh, you know, when his stomach starts to hurt him, he's always, he, um, he knows he's wrong. So I think that history was very instrumental in teaching me about um uh, how to trade financial markets. On the other hand, uh, in, in some ways, even in running this book, my experience in financial markets has been, you know, uh, very valuable. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's the uh, uh, 
famous parable of the dishonest steward. I, th- I think it was in Luke, uh, where a, a, a basically a steward is embezzling money from the rich man. The rich man calls him in, and he's all upset. So he's trying to figure out a way to get out of this because he, he thinks he's going to be fired. You know, he says he, he doesn't want a real job or he really has to work because he's too lazy. He's too proud to become a beggar. So he comes up with this great idea. He goes to the tenants and he says, listen, you owe this much. Okay, I'll cut it down to this to pay back. And he does it with, you know, a whole bunch of tenants. And then he goes to the rich man. And rather than being castigated, uh, the rich man says, oh, you're really shrewd. Congratulations. Now, you say, what? Excuse me? What's going on here? But if you have an understanding of what was going on in society back there, the finances, the whole crisis of rural poverty in Judea back at that time, you'll find what was happening was that the um, the people that were the small landowners, their possessions were getting smaller and smaller, you know, as because they had to divide it up between their sons. So when they had a bad harvest to survive, they had to borrow money. Now, back by the old law in the Torah, debts were forgiven after seven years. Mm-hmm. However, around the time of Jesus, they came up with a loophole where basically they signed away this right. So what would happen would be if they had another bad harvest, they couldn't pay back the loan, then they would lose their land. So basically what, and to put it in modern financial parlance, what the parable is saying, hey, wait a minute, why don't you restructure the debt? Make it that it could be, you know, in a way that they could pay it back. And I think what the parable is saying, and it's actually the parable is not about the uh, steward at all. It's not about the rich man. It's about the tenants. And it's what it's saying is that tenants were saved because the rich man ultimately by restructuring their debt, allowing the debt to be restructured, put the cohesion of society above his own selfish interests. So there are cases like this, I think, that finance has helped me a little bit as well. I was also thinking, and we can speak in a moment about what led you to want to write this book and how you got involved in teaching adult Sunday school classes and and so on. Even before that, I was thinking one of the other parallels between your work in history and in finance might be that, you know, hindsight is 2020, as it were. One of the problems in telling history is we often um, we tell it because we know where it ended, but we right. don't think about how it, the actors at the time didn't know what was going to happen next and so on and so forth. Likewise with the markets. I mean, you can always say, well, well we should have sold when the market was at its peak, but at the exactly. time, you don't know it's at its peak. So. No, I, I think that's a really good point, and I think a, a really good example of that is something else I talk about in the book, and that's the whole um, sort of what you know, the whole revolt of the Jews against Rome. And we look back at that and we say, God, we know what happened. Temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was leveled. Basically, the Jews as a national state were gone up until very, very recently. And we look at it and say, why did they do that? They knew it was suicidal. Well, the fact of the matter is they didn't know it was suicidal. You know, they had examples from the recent past where Herod the Great, you know, was a client king of Rome, and his kingdom was probably larger than the kingdom of Judea had ever been before. His grandson, Herod Agrippa, also ruled it for Rome. 
And also, as one historian pointed out, the the Jews were unique in the Roman world because besides the Romans, they were the people that had a common history, almost a, a, a constitution with the law and the Torah that goes back, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of years. So they could envision themselves as being an independent state. And they probably figured, well, yeah, maybe we'll be able to negotiate something with the Romans. Once we hold we hold them off, who knows what's going to happen? We're a proud people. We have a nation. So I don't think that they believed that it was suicidal to revolt against Rome. So with your day job in finance, speak a bit about how you got interested in teaching an adult Sunday school class. Uh, well, it, it was sort of our – it wasn't really Sunday school. It was our mm-hmm. adult education class. Sure. And um, a few years ago, before the pandemic, our uh, associate pastor, Beverly Bartlett, and I decided that the old model had been there had been a men's Bible study and there had been a women's Bible study. And uh, we decided to integrate it and, and have one adult Bible study. And we were going to meet a couple times a month. And, um, and we were sort of going to team teach the course. A lot of it would be reading various parts of the Bible, various gospels, but Beverly and I were sort of going to guide it. And um, what happened was that I decided, you know what, we need a book. And the book I was looking for was one that would give a historical, cultural, religious context to the Gospels, because the class was going to be on the Gospels. Something that wasn't theological, didn't have a sort of political axe to grind, you know, wasn't seeing Jesus as the Savior that was coming at precisely the right time, or Jesus as this zealot progressive who was going to lead a rebellion, something that was sort of objective based on the context and, and wasn't trying to, you know, push a certain viewpoint. I couldn't find it. So maybe there's one out there that I missed or a few out there I missed. So I said, you know what? I want to learn about this. So in educating myself, why don't I write the book myself? And pandemic came along and it gave me plenty of time to write. What would you say was some of the things some of the the theological or political views that that were already embedded in a lot of these narratives that you wanted to kind of set aside? Well, I think number one, I think the theological view, I forget the title of the book, but it was, uh, I I think we read it a couple years before it in in one of the adult education classes. Essentially, it was about the world of Jesus, but it was basically the premise was that this was a crisis point in the world and Jesus was coming at exactly the right time. Well, Maybe that's theologically true. I'm not sure, but I don't think that helps you so much from a historical point of view. There was the other book that was written, I'm forgetting the author right now, but it was very popular for a while. I think it was called Jesus the Zealot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was sort of saying, no, this guy wasn't just theological. He was a real sort of social revolutionary. Well, the first problem with that book was they didn't understand what zealot actually meant, the author, because zealot was a very precise term. It meant a certain faction during the revolt against the Romans. It was sort of the priestly faction that were, that revolved around the temple. It wasn't a broad term for you know radicals fighting against Rome. And number two, I think it was looking at Jesus in a very sort of way that wasn't really um, supported by studying the Gospels. So... I felt that it was really important to sort of take those elements out and say, well, what was the world really like when the Gospels, you know, at at the time of the Gospels? 
so much has been written, as you know, about the life of Jesus. So how did you go about just doing all this research? It's amazing the number of, you know, texts and books that you discussed that you definitely sort of read on the way to doing this. But how did you go about sort of uh, well, the, 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 the thing about, you know, I think when it started about 100 years ago, they the search for the historical Jesus. Well, frankly, the search for the historical Jesus has not been very successful. Basically, what we know about Jesus is in the Gospels. Now, he's mentioned in Tacitus. I think he's mentioned in Josephus, but just, you know, in passing, really. Uh, So we don't really know a lot about Jesus outside of that. So I felt the way to understand Jesus and his world was to look at the historical and the social context and and the religious context, and also to understand what the Gospels themselves really were. Uh, And basically, the Gospels were a a genre at that time in the ancient world. It It was ancient biography. Now, when the ancients, the Romans and Greeks, wrote biography, they didn't write it like we'd write biography today. It didn't start off with the childhood, try to understand their psychology and, and move sort of very steadily throughout, you know, throughout the life. It was really trying to understand the person the biography was about, giving some interesting sort of information about what happened when he was born, talk about you know, certain miraculous things that might have happened in his life, and then finally spend an inordinate amount of time on the person's death. So when you think about it, the Gospels were ancient biographies, and also the length of the with the Gospels. One Gospel sort of fits, I think, in one papyrus roll, basically, and that was the length of most ancient biographies, if you look at Plutarch and other ancient biographers. So if you look at it that way, the Gospels themselves are the best source for understanding Jesus' life. And you maintain that the Gospels are reliable, accurate sources. So what led you to that particular conclusion? I mean, you can say more about that maybe. Well, number one, and this might sound, uh, you know, uh, uh, paradoxical, but the thing that gives me a lot of faith in them is all the contradictions within the Gospels. You know, they don't totally match up. I mean, it's the same basic theme, each one from a slightly different viewpoint. But there's actual events that happen. John is very different than the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, even between Mark, Luke, and Matthew, there's there's differences, chronological, the people, and everything else. And one of the things that gives me faith is that if it had all been ironed out, if somebody said, well, let's take all these Gospels together and take out all the contradictions and make one unified Gospel, I wouldn't have nearly... The cho- you know the, the the faith that I have the very fact that when the canon was being produced that they allowed the gospels to stand on their own to, to me is a sort of a testimony to their credibility and, and I think that's one important thing and the other thing is the more you look about the social and cultural context the more you see that the gospels you know they they, they sound right you know right on the mark. You know, what you understand about society in that time. You know, they always talk about the scribes, the uh, uh, Pharisees, and the Herodians. You know, the, the, you know it, it, it all rings true. So, and I think also when you study the Gospels, you have to give a lot of thought to both literacy at that time, 
and the oral tradition at that time. So one of the things that people don't understand is in ancient times, only about 15% of the population was literate. This was like in Rome and also in Judea at that, that time. And this has been really good scholarly work, you know, done on that where they found certain archives and look at legal documents that have been signed and they've been able to come up with these estimates. So therefore, information was mostly orally transmitted. And the Gospels originally were based, a lot of it was based on oral testimony. Now, that could lead us in one of two ways. Number one, for a while during the mid-20th century, we had the whole sort of uh, idea of formed criticism and biblical criticism. And that was the idea that it was an oral tradition, but it was almost folkloric in nature, and that the Gospels represented the needs and the consciousness of each particular place that they were written in. But recently, I think that the trend has been, um, Richard Bauckham, for example, at Cambridge, that it was based on reliable eyewitness testimony, that the people, that the testimony the Gospels were based on were people that actually knew Jesus or knew people that knew Jesus. And there's been a whole lot of work there that sort of, um, you'd have to read the book to understand all of it, that sort of reinforces this viewpoint. And also there has been work by a, um, there was a Presbyterian minister about 50 years ago, his name was Kenneth Bailey, and he was actually at the, yes, at the Princeton Theological Seminary for a while. And he grew, his parents were missionaries in the Middle East. And he did a whole lot of research on the oral tradition in the Middle East in modern times. And he actually found out that the really, a lot of it, they were very careful to make sure that it, you know, stuck to the facts, that it was correct, that it just wasn't idle gossip and rumors floating around. Mm -hmm. So I think when you take in the, the historical context of the Gospels, add it with the eyewitness testimony, I think that that could give you a lot of faith in them. Mm -hmm. And how easy was it for you to make sense of the social, political, uh, cultural context and you know, emphasizing whether it's, there's some similarities between ours and there, but really that big gap in history? Well, I, I think that comes from my, from my training as a historian. Now, my uh, initial training when I did my PhD was in, in 17th century history in England and Scotland. So, of course, it was very different from first century AD in Palestine. Yeah. Uh, and I, I want to make clear, you know, when you talk about the world back then, it's kind of hard to find the, the correct term because it, the, the Jewish world was Judea and Galilee. The coastline wasn't heavily Jewish. It was, you know, uh, a, a lot of Gentiles. So it was a very diverse type of place. And so you can't say Judea because it doesn't include other parts. Uh, and and Palestine didn't exist at the time because the Romans gave the name Palestine after they, you know, uh, crushed the you know the Jews during their revolt. But it's sort of I find Palestine is the best word to sort of you know en encompass the entire area. I, I so what I decided as a historian, I said, well, I have to read the best stuff. I have to read the best monographs. Uh, for example, there's a historian at Oxford by the name of Martin Goodman. He wrote a sort of a bestseller type of book called Roman Jerusalem, but he also wrote a book about the social structure of Judea, you know, leading up to the Great Revolt, which was more of a scholarly type of monograph. Mm -hmm. 
So you go to people like him and other scholars, and you could really learn a lot about it. And to do it, I also had to learn a lot about, you know, the Pharisees, the Essenes, you know, and there's a, and some of the best stuff for them, by the way, is Josephus. Josephus was an ancient historian. He was a Jew who was actually involved in the revolt against Rome, then was captured by the Romans and actually sort of went over to the Roman side and wrote a history of the Jewish revolt. Now, you have to take some of it with a grain of salt because he came from the temple elite. So his viewpoint of the reasons for the revolt would be very different from what a modern historian would think. But I think when you take all this in, the Gospels, Josephus, and also all the really sort of good work that has been done in the field over the last 50 years or so, I think you can get what you need to get a fairly decent idea. You quote the historian Keith Hopkins and his famous saying that the world of Jesus was a world full of gods. Right. Why is that picture important for understanding Jesus's ministry? Well, I'm not sure. You know, I, when I was a kid, I used to love the biblical spectaculars. And, you know, Ben-Hur, you know, and the other ones about the Romans. And I always remember there was always a part where some, you know, like, some Roman governor who was giving up his post would say, oh, I'm so happy to get out of this, you know, this place. You know, these people are crazy. Uh, you know, we all know, you know, we have our gods in Rome, but we know they don't really exist. You know, and these people really believe in it. Well, it's just not true. All the people in the ancient world lived in a world full of gods. Now, it might not have been a, you know, a god like the Jews had, but they believed in demons, they believed in magic. So it was a world that was infused with this. So therefore, on a certain level, the mentality of the time would be open to somebody like Jesus. Uh, and even when you talk about some of the miracles in the Gospels, like you know, expelling demons from somebody, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but to somebody living in the first century AD, oh yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, he, he, he chased the demons out. So I think that I think that's important to understand that so you understand the environment that Jesus was in. So once Christianity starts to spread, you know, first it spread to, you know, Jewish communities and then people that were connected to the Jewish communities, but ultimately it went to people outside of that world. So they would have to believe in some type of mystical type of things, some type of godlike creatures to be able to understand what Christianity was saying. Mm-hmm. I also want to ask you a bit about who uh, some of the thinkers who had the most impact on your thought. But before that, I thought I might just pull out a few quotes that I found quite uh, interesting or compelling in the book. One was you, you note that as is often the case in history, the reality is more complex. That's a quote, just in right. general. You also say, quote, Jesus' world was a was vibrant, diverse, and constantly evolving. You also say, quote, the world that Jesus knew, this is important, I think, the world that Jesus knew and that in which the Gospels were written were quite compl- different, end quote. And the point there, something I was noticing throughout the book, a lot, some of the time you're actually talking about the world that existed soon after Jesus' um, death right. and which is important of course because that was the context in which the gospels were written down right maybe you want to speak to to any of that oh another quote revolutions often devour their own i thought that was a good one and finally the goal quote was to diversify the risk 
that was a good example of where your financial background yeah, right. is coming in yeah. and you're interpreting the world then through right. a finance kind of perspective. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that really jumped off, um, jumped out at me was if you just look at, you know, Palestine at that time, first of all, you had many different sovereignties. I mean, Rome was over everything, but you had Judea was basically ruled directly by Rome at that time. And you had a Roman proconsul. Now, the proconsul didn't report to the emperor. He reported to the governor in Syria. So it wasn't considered quite as important as a, an official province. So it was a sort of a sub-province. Then you had um, across the Sea of Galilee, across the Jordan, which is sort of modern-day Jordan now, a thing they call the Decapolis, which was about a bunch of these city-states. And that was Gentile. Then you had Galilee. And what people forget about Galilee is was Galilee was only converted to Judaism about 100 years before Jesus. It was under the, you know, the Hashmonian um, monarchy, which were the descendants of the Maccabees. And they actually were the ones that forcibly converted the Galileans. And then you have along the coast where you have like various, some, some Greek cities and some of the old Phoenician cities. And then you have Idumea, which was the old Edom. And that's where Herod the Great's family was from. And they were converted only about 100 years before. So if you go look at Galilee, people look suspiciously at people from Galilee. So remember the old quote, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. And then you had Herod the Great who had a problem. And one of the reasons he built the new temple was because he wanted to really establish his Jewishness. They referred to him as a half Jew. So you had this diversity of populations. You had Gentiles and Jews living hand in hand. You had Samaria in between Galilee and Judea. So I tried to track Jesus once, you know, in just a, a, a few passages, one chapter of one of the Gospels. You know, he goes from, you know, the province of Syria because he went to Tyre, and then he goes back into Galilee. Then he goes across the Sea of Galilee to Decapolis, and then he might even go down to Judea, which was under Rome. So he was traveling in all these different separate, you know, you know, parts of the Roman Empire. And don't forget, too, that it was the main language was Aramaic. It wasn't Hebrew. Hebrew was something you learned if you wanted to be study the Torah. And it was sort of a, a sign of, of the sort of the Judean elites. But also, I would assume that Jesus also knew Greek because Everybody spoke Greek as well. In fact, as far as literacy went, it was easier to learn Greek to read and write than it was to, read, to, to learn Hebrew. So you had all this diversity going on. So in this world was really vibrant. And then if you look at the greater empire, uh, one, I'm forgetting the, the, uh, the scholar's name right now, but it's in the book. He comes up with this name, the Holy Internet. Right. And He's basically trying to get the idea that if you look at the Roman world at that time, it was they were connected by sort of an informal type of internet. You had the hospitality in the various cities, like what Paul would go to, the various churches. You had the hub in Jerusalem. Then you had some 
you know, other, you know, very important networks, um, networks, you know, Ephesus. Then you had the Roman highways and the sea lanes that connected everything. So you had this internet almost that was able to, you know, pull the world together and allow, you know, the gospels to sort of transmit across the Roman world. So you had all this going on. And then you, of course, have all the, uh, the social sort of tensions before the Jewish revolt, which again, Jesus was speaking to those within the Gospels. Absolutely. Yeah, well, one of the chapters I found, I found them all interesting, but maybe especially interesting was the one on society, because you got into just a lot of the everyday life aspects, right. what kind of houses people lived in, which really illuminate a lot of the Gospel stories, you know, what kind of clothes that we wore, right. what kind of goods they traded, yeah. uh, languages they spoke, and so on. Right, and one of the things that's interesting we all have when we when our kids would we would see the pictures and it would be Jesus would be in his robes with the turban and all that. He just dressed like everybody else in the Roman Empire. You know, there was nothing, you know, they they would wear a tunic which went down to their knees, you know, simple cloth, uh, you know, a, a cloak. Uh it wasn't, you know, sandals. It wasn't anything different. And you really couldn't tell the difference. If you were walking around Judea the Jews and the Gentiles will look exactly the same. Their um, their homes would look the same. Now, probably if you analyze their, you know, what they were eating, obviously there, there would be differences there because of the law, what the Jews could eat and not eat. But there was, you know, not a whole lot of difference as far as you know those type of things. But the also the really interesting thing was Jerusalem was a major city, and it was also because the temple was there. It was probably one of the major tourist attractions of the Roman Empire. And it brought extraordinary wealth into Judea. And um, also, it, it, it put a strain on the society because the agriculture and everything else had to support Jerusalem. It was sort of because it didn't have a, it wasn't commercially well situated, it wasn't a trading hub, it was all based on the temple. So, you know, that was a really important part of the economy and the society back then. As you were researching for this book, what were some of the things about the world of Jesus that most surprised you? Well, I, I think one of the characters that jumps out is Herod the Great. And he, you know, um, he lived, we don't know, he, he, he died in about 6 B.C., six or four PC, right around the time that Jesus was born, which makes the whole sort of uh, thing about, you know, the, the the slaughtering of the innocents a little bit problematic. But uh, he, even though he was dead during the time of Jesus, his sort of, you know, ghost inhabited the whole world. That's why they keep talking about the Herodians, because his two of his grandsons ruled, uh, uh, you had... Uh, Herod Antipas, the man who executed um, John the Baptist, uh, ruling Galilee. You had Philip the Tetrarch, you know, up in sort of the frontier lands outside of Galilee. And you had later on Herod Agrippa. And then there was another part of the family that was involved in the revolt who supported the Romans. So he was a fascinating character. He makes the, the TV series Game of Thrones looks tame. He executed three of his sons. He was madly in love and obsessive of his wife, and the way he probably solved that problem was executing her. And he was this larger-than-life character, but he was also one of the major, one of the greatest client kings in the Roman 
by one of the richest people in the Roman world. He supported, you know, you know, Hellenistic cities all over the Roman Empire. He was both the epitome of the Jewish monarch and the Hellenistic king. And and he, you know, was a supporter of of, of Rome. So I think that, and and maybe if when you read the book, you say, why how, why did he spend so much time on Herod the Great? Well, he was the guy that made the world to Jesus. So that's the reason I had to spend uh, spend that much time on him. One of the things, and maybe this as a final question, I feel like you're you're kind of trying to thread a needle between, as you said earlier, a vision that so has these theological ideas at the fore that it doesn't look at the history as it as it was at right. the time. But on the other hand, you don't want a, a reading of the Gospels that reduces everything to it's only speaking for its own time and it's reduced to there's no right. kind of truth um, or nor, like truth value, things that we can actually learn about you know theology, about God right. and so on from the Bible. So you're, you're kind of wanting to, to thread a middle path, maybe you want to call right. it there. And maybe just to get at that question, in writing the book, did this change your own sort of faith, your own views of theology in any way? And how do you read the Bible differently now after having done this research? Well, I, I, I think that's a great question. I, I'll take the last part first because that's the easiest because everything I learned about the oral transmission, the eyewitnesses, has given me much more credence to the Gospels than I ever had before. So that has definitely um, increased my faith. But I think, you know, although, you know, we're talking about, you know, how people lived and how they dressed and all that, there were other cultural and religious things going on that I talk about in the book. One of the important things, if you look at Judaism, to be a Jew, basically, there were two things. You had to observe the law and you had to sacrifice at the temple. There's nothing that says that you have to believe in God. Uh, so therefore, if you, you know, that was what you had to do. But of course, people said, well, wait a minute. Isn't there more than that? Uh, you know, why do bad things happen in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, why do we, you know, why do we get ourselves in trouble with the Romans and everything else? So parallel to the law and the temple, there was a whole strand of, of Judaism and, and uh, apocalyptic type of sense, which the book of Enoch, for example, which is not in the normal Old, Old Testament, which tries to deal with these type of things. So in a way, you can almost see the world of Jesus coming out of some of these type of things. Also, you had the Sadducees who basically believed uh, in the law and the temple, and that was it. The Pharisees, who I always feel a little bit bad for the Pharisees, like like they always come across as the straight men, the people that Jesus was attacking, but they were kind of interesting people. They believed in angels. They believed in resurrection of the dead. Most likely, Paul was a Pharisee initially. So they were also having a different strand. It was, and what was remarkable about Judaism, it incorporated all these different strands. The final thing, which has really come out to me in, in, in studying the parables a little bit more, the one we were talking about, but also with um, Lazarus and the rich man, which that's all about how the rich man, by giving Lazarus the scraps off his table, was following the law to the letter. But Jesus is saying, no, you got to do more. You have to empathize with the poor. You have to try to help them. And I think what you learn, and when you know about what's happened in society and the teaching of Jesus in the parables, how Jesus was such a revolutionary way reaching out to the poor 
and the marginalized in a way unheard of in the ancient world, which makes Jesus, you know, truly profoundly revolutionary. Roy Lennox, it's been great to talk to you about uh, your new book, In the Footsteps of Jesus, Exploring the World of the Gospels. It's a wonderful book. I learned a lot from it. It's in very accessible prose. I think you've successfully done exactly what you wanted to do, which was to bring a wealth of information and to put it into a way that anybody can uh, can learn from and then go read the Gospels, uh, the Bible in a new way. So thank you so much for the book and for being on the podcast. Well, th thank you, Josh, and congratulations on this great new podcast facility in this wonderful new building. Well, congratulations to you, too, uh, on making this happen, Roy. So thanks so much, and it's been great to be in this room with you. Thank you.